Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You, and welcome to this, our very latest podcast. And uh, we try to give you the news you're not going to see anywhere else. It's uh, We always look for the science as well that's behind it. So um, this week we're going to be looking at paradoxes in medicine. Why stuff doesn't seem to work, but yet it does. And uh, we'll be looking specifically at alcohol. How much is it safe to drink? Then we'll be looking at cholesterol levels and why there's so much contradictory evidence about that. And then we're going to look at vaccines and in particular the money the manufacturers are bringing in as a result of the anti-vax campaign that's been going on. So there's plenty for you to listen to on this podcast. But Lynn, tell us a bit about the magazines we've got out at the moment on the shelves. Well, as you know, we have a physical magazine that's now in 15 different languages and including America and the UK, which is the one that we do. And this latest issue, which is our March edition, has a really fascinating story about very simple ways that you can prevent breast cancer. Believe it or not, there is a single food that cuts breast cancer risk by nearly two-thirds. And we've also looked at um, all kinds of natural healing in here, Uh, Cures for Eczema, um, a really interesting expose about free-from foods, and so much more. We've got stuff on pets, um, good idea about a a detoxing alkalization diet. Goodness me. (laughs) And many, many more things. Mm. But there's another one that's going to be coming. Sneak preview, guys. Sneak Sneak preview of our April Mm -hmm. issue. And this I'm really excited about because we did a special issue on depression. And in this magazine, we've got an incredible piece from a psychiatrist who basically says there is no such thing as mental illness, that all of the people coming to her with things like anxiety and depression and even schizophrenia have something going on, as she puts it, upstream in their bodies. And once she sorts that out, whether it's their thyroid problem or they need to detox or they're lacking in certain supplements, she gives them a variety of tests, all of those so-called mental issues go away. And she's seen it again and again. So we also have um, a real practical program you can use to find out what's causing your blues and how to sort them. Mm. And as, as usual, we've got a big potpourri of all kinds of other things, some natural medicines, um, cures for specific illnesses, cure for your pets, special recipes, um, healthy shopping, and so much more. So check us out. Mm. And uh, it's in stores all over the place across the UK and the US. But if you do have uh, difficulties getting it, then subscribe. And you can do so via our website, which is wddty.com. And we'll send it to your home every month. And so to the news and our paradox special. And the first paradox article is about alcohol. I mean, the number of times we've read that alcohol is okay, that it actually could be good for us. And then we have stories that even the merest sniff will send us to an early grave. And well, what is the truth of what's going on? Well, we seem to have come a bit closer to where the truth actually lies. And it's more to do with science 
than with alcohol itself. Some researchers have had a look at this, and they found that depending on the research and the people who are included in the study, and particularly their ages, how, how young or old they are, actually determines whether alcohol is good or not for you, which is very interesting. That, so, for example, if um, someone is relatively young, is a very, very heavy drinker, alcoholic, the chances are they could be dead by the time they're 50 or 60 or so. And But that will bring down the average in terms of well, what is a healthy amount, because it seems that nothing is healthy if people are dying from it. But if these people are excluded, and of course they, they are self-excluding by dying, and you actually have a whole a, a older age group, like 60-plus people, alcohol suddenly becomes quite a good thing in moderation. So it's very interesting. They, they, they discovered that it was all really to do with the way that research is set up. And if they were to just look at older people drinking in moderation by which we go back to the idea of one or two drinks a day maximum, um, alcohol has a mildly positive effect on health. But when they widen it to a much uh, wider group of people, say, including the 20-year-olds who could be very heavy drinkers, of course, then all of a sudden, alcohol is not good for you. So the takeaway message, according to the, the researchers who looked at this, was that um, once you reach the age of 65 and you're a moderate drinker, I say, you know, that is the one or two glasses a day, it probably is okay and could have a mildly beneficial effect on your health. So, um, and by which time, alcohol is not going to be the killer because if you're alive at 65, the chances are it isn't going to kill you anyway because you were never a heavy drinker to begin with. So there you are. There's that sort of maybe throws a bit of light on this so much contradictory evidence we've had about alcohol then. Well, and I think really what you have to understand is the risk-benefit equation with mm. alcohol. Mm. And that's the really interesting part about it because there are real benefits in certain alcohols, particularly red wine. But when you look at actual statistics about various things that it's supposed to do, it doesn't stack up. Uh, one of our writers, regular writers, Tony Edwards, wrote a book called <clears throat> The Good News About Booze. Mm. And he studied so many statistics about different areas of that are supposedly um, a cause of alcoholism and, alcohol and, and ill health and found that none of them were true. Even certain kinds of weight gain, you know, was not to do with alcohol. Mm. That alcohol didn't cause weight gain. Mm. Maybe mixers did. You know, they're high in sugar, but not alcohol. But that risk-benefit equation is particularly the case when you look at these moderate health benefits of alcohol versus the fact that alcohol is a mild poison that the liver has to detoxify. So you've got this kind of balancing act that you've got to find where it is actually better for you than the, any kind of damage it's doing to your liver. Because mm. one of the things that I found really fascinating most recently is that <clears throat> when the liver is compromised, and that would be from excessive drinking or whatever, it can cause, it's, 
your body stops being able to control its own weight. Mm. And so a lot of problems with weight gain actually have to do with liver issues. Mm. But this is all about too much drinking. So it does come back to, you know, the science is, as you say, so contradictory because it's asking the wrong questions mm. most of the time. And it's certainly not mm. asking consistent questions. Mm. And I think it's worth saying that, um, you know, you say, oh, a couple of drinks a day, but... I think there is a virtue also in having rest days, isn't there? That, that to have four or five, four days off with no booze at all is is good for the body, helps it recover. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, thanks, Lynn. Okay, so to paradox story number two, and um, this one concerns cholesterol. Now, you know the standard uh, standard version of things says that high cholesterol, particularly bad cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, furs up the arteries and causes chronic uh, heart disease and uh, eventually heart attack and stroke. And yet, um, it seems that that's not entirely true. Well, we all know it's not true if you regularly listen to our podcast, but let's go with this one for a minute. Um, That, um, in fact, high cholesterol levels protect you from cancer and respiratory disease. So how come the how do you square that circle? Well, it goes back to the first story, and it's to do with age. And the older you are, the role and the protective effects of cholesterol change. So anyone over the age of 65, actually their LDL cholesterol levels start to protect them. And um, the idea that you'd give statins, therefore, to the over 65s, therefore lowering their cholesterol levels, would seem to be deleterious, harmful to their health. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, Chinese Centre for Disease Control and Prevention carried out this study, although to be fair, their study was um, restricted to people aged 80 and over. Um, they discovered that is, uh, the, it had all sorts of protective effects. It even protected against falls, which of course is a standard problem for older people being unstable on their feet, and it actually protected against that as well. And apparently medicine has a term for this. It's called risk factor paradox. (laughs) So in other words, things that were considered to be risky earlier in life actually become uh, protective as we get older. And uh, other things that have a similar uh, paradoxical effect are high blood pressure and a higher BMI or body mass index as we get older. And certainly by the time we reach 80, having a slightly higher BMI and slightly higher blood pressure level and a higher cholesterol level is actually protective. And now, how about that? And um, it's quite a major study. It was 930 people were were analysed to uh, to make this discovery, and um, and not su- not surprisingly, the people with the higher cholesterol levels also live longer because mm-hmm. of all these protective effects that it had. So, what do you make of that paradox? Well, it's an, only a paradox if you believe the current paradigm, Brian. <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, you know, it's not really a paradox because. Uh, medicine has it completely wrong about fats mm. and blood fats. And we've seen over the years, study after study, refuting the idea that cholesterol, high cholesterol, really does lead to heart disease and that high cholesterol is something to be lowered. 
I mean, and it, and it makes complete sense when you start looking at some of the latest evidence about fats and the body. Mm. You know, fats are necessary. Fats don't make you fat. Sugar and processed foods make you fat. But fats are really important for your brain, in particular, as you get older. And fats are important for your muscles, too. And I found it very interesting with that Chinese research that they found that... Uh, high cholesterol was protective against falls. And that would make sense because it is helpful to the muscles. It feeds the muscles. And if you see what happens with statins, one of the big side effects is muscle weakness. So what I'm really concerned about is the fact that statins just aren't going away. I mean, there's so much evidence against them. Um, they haven't really been proven to work. They're causing so much damage. And Personally, I feel that they're probably a big part of this giant increase in dementia that's going on among the aging population, dementia and Alzheimer's. Because if you're robbing the body of necessary fats, which feed the brain, no wonder the brain mm. is starving and the brain is going to start mm. reacting. Well, that's a major benefit as well of LDL cholesterol is, is its, its important protective effect on the brain. And the Chinese didn't mention that at all. But of course, previous studies that we've explored show exactly that. Mm. And, um, you know, there is an argument, there's a correlation between statin intake and, and the rise of dementia. Um, if, if the people are being the restricted of the fats they need uh, for their brain health, well, it follows, doesn't it, that uh, older people could develop dementia. Absolutely. So this whole idea of cholesterol is a terrible red herring. It spawned all kinds of, of medicine and theories that are doing us nothing but harm. So one of the keys to old age and healthy old age is making sure you get the right fats. And they are not um, polyunsaturated fats like seed oils, like sunflower seeds, etc. They are subjected to too much heat and processing and they become very reactive and oxidative. So they're not good for you. But um, but you do need omega-6s in the form of things like sunflower seeds and, and pumpkin seeds. But you need to make sure that you get enough omega-3 fatty acids. You need to make sure that you have good fats, uncooked extra virgin olive oil, coconut oil, and all of those animal fats that we always eschewed, goose fat, you know, beef fat, all of those fats, mm. if you eat meat, are good for you. Well, any of you who've not been living in a cave of late may have noticed there's been a plethora of um, stories promoting the use of vaccines, clamping down on anti-vaxxers, as they're known, um, really looking for um, more control over what is posted on social media that may be of an anti-vax uh, sort of leaning and um, the national, international press has followed suit with many, many op-ed pieces about how these vaccine deniers are threatening mankind and all the rest of it. And there are several stories running along there, which we'll come back to in, in future podcasts. But enough to say this time round that there is a winner and it's not children 
it's the vaccine manufacturers. Um, there's a market research group, several have actually looked at this, one of them called HTF, reckon that uh, there will be a massive hike in MMR vaccine revenues by 2025. And uh, Research and Markets, another market research group, has actually put some figures on it and reckon that vaccine revenues will rise to $57.5 billion by 2025, which is up from $33.7 billion last year. So a pretty impressive increase all of a sudden. And, um, and they say that a lot of it is to do with government initiatives to make sure that children are getting... Uh, vaccinated, and of course, in the other side of that same coin, is censoring anti-vax voices and making sure they're not going to get heard, so that more and more people do get their children vaccinated. And uh, but as I say, there is certainly one big winner, and that is the vaccine manufacturer themselves. So I'm sure you have a lot to say about this, Lynn. Well, this is outrageous on a number of fronts, Brian. And number one is the collusion of the media with the pharmaceutical industry on this issue. I am shocked as a journalist to see ordinarily responsible media out outposts like the New York Times write these pro-vaccine editorials that are not based in fact. If they understood that, if they had done the slightest bit of research, they would not make statements like vaccines are safe and effective. Vaccines are not completely safe. Manufacturers say this. They have to put a whole list of side effects. They have to put aside an enormous amount of money to fund VAERS, which is the Vaccine um, Adverse Event Reporting System in America, that has paid out millions in children who have been damaged by vaccines. That is tacit acknowledgement that there is no such thing as a completely safe vaccine. So there is, number one, the media collusion. Um, when I was a journalist, you know, when I was reporting as a young reporter, we were taught that you needed to be objective. You needed to provide both sides of the story with general information like that. And to not put in anything about the dangers of vaccines is irresponsible journalism, number one. Number two is the issue of censorship. We've got to a point where no voice challenging vaccines um, is allowed to be heard anymore. That, you know, that Google is, is monitoring this, Facebook is monitoring this. This is really shocking because it's tacit agreement that vaccines are completely safe and effective. So that we can't even ask the question anymore in anything other than magazines like ours is outrageous. Mm. Then the other thing is the ignorance and the lack of logic in this idea that we have to have herd immunity at all costs um, because that is going to stop these outbreaks of measles, et cetera, et cetera. That is a complete fallacy. Number one, consistently, these outbreaks occur among vaccinated children in the main. That's number one. Number two, if vaccines worked so well, then 
why would the people who got vaccinated have their children vaccinated have to worry? Because they'd be protected. And the other people who had chosen to carry out their own right to make a determination about their own child, would that would be their decision to expose them to the illnesses or not. That's not the state's decision, that's their decision. These are not, in the main, um, these are not um, uh, diseases that kill um, well-nourished children, you know, in, in the main. Um, and many of the ones that did have totally disappeared and not because of vaccines. So finally, the real, real issue here is coercion. The issue is really about the government coercing and the authorities coercing people to give their children things that they not cannot guarantee is safe. And what we used to do in a lot of our uh, information about vaccines is have a little vaccine um, authorization um, form that you would give to your doctor and say, I, doctor so-and-so, um, I um, agree and acknowledge that this vaccine is totally safe. And if it is not, it is my responsibility. Mm. There is no doctor who will sign that because they know that vaccines cannot, they cannot guarantee that vaccines don't have, carry some risk and aren't always effective. Okay, MS, multiple sclerosis, terrible disease, debilitating and um, autoimmune, but no one really knows, well, what kickstarts it? What causes it? They just know it's, it's something to do with the immune system. And thereafter, we draw a blank. But there's been some research lately by the Brigham and Women's Hospital group. And um, quite interestingly, they think that, yes, it is a reaction, but it actually starts as an allergic reaction, which is uh, causing inflammation in the gut, which then triggers MS symptoms. Um, so they've had a bit of a look at this, which I think is very interesting indeed. Um because I do know already that a, a typical MS sufferer you know, can suffer a relapse soon after a certain food they eat, that they do react to that. But they just thought, well, that's just a you know a co-carrying symptom of the problem. But they've actually gone further and think, well, no, actually, it could be triggering the, the problem in the first place. It was the genesis of the problem mm. in the first place. Um, they had a look at over nearly uh, 1,400 MS sufferers, um, they, they discovered that only those who had a food allergy suffered severe and frequent relapses. So they're saying that it seems to be MS, therefore, could be an inflammatory response to food. And so I think that's um, quite an interesting insight. I mean, I don't know whether that means, well, therefore, can we treat MS? It certainly opens a new door of therapy, which I think is very, very interesting to see whether, therefore, removing the food or trying to uh, restore the gut to its good bacteria environment or what could actually reverse the condition. They haven't actually gone that far. But as I say, it does seem to open the way for new research, new therapies anyway. So what do you think then? I mean, it's a very interesting. It seems to be a common factor, doesn't it, with so many conditions 
um, some reaction, some food, some you know, gut, uh, compromised gut seems to be at the heart of so many problems. Absolutely. I think that is where most things start. Now, mm. here's one possibility, too, that maybe it isn't the allergic food, that, that the allergy started it. But because there was a compromised gut, the allergy mm. aggravated it or caused it to, ha to happen mm. because of several things. Now, one of the things that um, the late Patrick Kingsley, who cured many patients of multiple sclerosis, mm. found was that in so many instances, patients had high mercury levels from amalgam in their teeth, in their fillings. And here's something that this causes. We know from that that amalgam fillings cause certain resistant bacteria in the gut. So it sets up a dysbiosis, a problem in the gut. And it also causes leaky gut. So that means that food molecules that ordinarily are stopped by that two-way uh, uh, protective fence we've got in, in our gut lining mm -hmm. are allowed through. And these large food molecules can cause all kinds of problems in the brain and neurologically, which is what happens with MS. So it could be the mercury causes the gut problems, which causes the causes the food allergies. But the point is that it really is all happening in the gut and happening with with toxicity in the gut in some way. And mm. so if we clear that up as he did, many of those symptoms go away. And he was actually reversing the condition, wasn't he? In thousands of patients, absolutely. Which is extraordinary. And of course, yeah. for his labors, he was uh, closed down. Well, nearly closed yeah, down. They yeah, tried. They yeah. were thinking about closing him down, yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah. but yeah, and he got pestered by the yeah. medical authorities instead of asked how come he's curing cancer and right. how come he's curing MS. One other final thing that he found that's really important to know about is B12. Mm. That is a really important factor that is missing in a lot of patients, not mm. high enough B12 levels mm. in patients with MS. Well, if you have MS or you know someone who does, do pass on that information because uh, that really could be the key. Let's hope so anyway. Thanks, Lynn. Thank you. So now to a quite a fascinating subject. I know it's quite close to your heart, Lynn, and to the other work that you do, and that's placebo. You know, I mean, placebos have been run against uh, drugs for many, many years, invariably found to be just as effective. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, they've even done it with surgical interventions, you name it. Uh, people are feeling better whether they've had the placebo or not, but the placebo is just as effective. Yeah. And uh, quite an extraordinary thing, really, isn't it? And it, I know it's done as a sort of a medical trial to sort of set it against the actual chemical agent to say, well, does the chemical agent actually work? But they're missing the point, which is the placebo is working. And that, to me, is a far more interesting insight than, uh, than the fact that it's tested against a drug. I mean, it seems that the human mind, whatever, however you describe that, has this healing capacity, which is quite extraordinary. But this new study just came out, which showed it doesn't even have to be anything physical, like a drug or a you know, sugar pill, as a placebo would be, to have an effect. And they've done it with psychological placebos, as they call it. And, and in this particular test from the University of Basel, they um, showed uh, 420 people a green screen, half of whom were told, this is relaxing, this is calming, this will have a positive effect on your emotions. 
and the rest they just show the green screen without saying anything at all about it and not surprisingly there you are the people who were told it had a calming effect that it was good for them and all the rest of it indeed recorded feeling much calmer afterwards they were much more in control of their emotions or anger and just because they were told that the green would have that effect on them yeah <laughs> <laughs> amazing so it? what do you think lynn about you know the use of placebo generally we we had a, a chap uh, we we knew we, we featured him in our magazine a few months back he did a thing called the x pill and the x pill is contains absolutely nothing and race brand yeah <laughs> and he told people this and they were nonetheless having enormous transformative uh, things happening to them in their lives and so you think well i mean and, and the interesting question is is the human mind isn't it yeah and how how does it heal how does it work where is the human mind does it extend beyond the body you know mm-hmm. this is total Lynn taggart filled power of eight Territories, so Lynn, tell us more. Well, I, I am fascinated by the power of the mind in healing. And I've certainly seen it with my Power of Eight groups where we put somebody, we have a group, a small group of eight, send an intention to somebody, a healing intention to somebody, member of the group with a health challenge. And we get a huge number of instant healings, instant, in 10 minutes. So that suggests something about the human capacity for healing, and as you say, the mind's ability to heal. Um, what we have to understand about health is it's a complex interweaving of our physical body, our mental body, our emotional body, our spiritual body, and all of those things combined to create health or illness. And what I find oftentimes, I ask people, you know, particularly people with cancer, and they'll say, well, what should I do? And I say, what do you believe is going to work? Because that's going to be the thing that heals them. And as you say, I mean, doctors, even when doctors tell patients, this is a placebo, that if they follow doctor's orders, he says, but I want you to take it twice a day, they will take it and they get better. Mm-hmm. And that really tells you all you need to know about the power of somebody's belief that this is going to help them because their doctor told them to take it. They believe it's going to help them Um, because a group of strangers is sending intention to you and caring about you enough to send healing thoughts to you. That's enough to cure you. And so really it all starts and ends in the human mind, our healing. And so our takeaway from that on our health side is What's going to heal you is what you believe is going to work. Mm. Thanks, Tim. Well, drugs are dangerous. We all know that. They have side effects. We have adverse reactions. But guess what? They're even more dangerous than we thought. Apparently, a, a fully 35% of adverse reactions are not getting recorded in medical trials. Why? Because they never set up the trial in the first place to record them. And um, so the, the people had a look at this. They said, well, yeah, 35% research studies um, looking at drugs are not recording side effects. Um, 8% of those weren't even set up in the first place to capture side effects. And the further th- 27% only did so partially. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's University of York researchers are rather staggered by this as to why they never look for it in the first place. But of course, it goes back to good old money, doesn't it? I mean, if um, most medical trials are being carried out uh, on the behest of the drug company and researching the drug that they want researching, well, they don't really want people to start capturing the information that it's not very good for you, that it can have serious adverse reactions. So not surprisingly, the trials are not set up in the first place to capture that. So, and we just, the truth is, we just don't know how dangerous drugs are because they're saying, well, 35% aren't getting captured in medical trials, but how many are not being recorded by doctors in the first place? I mean, there was one study years ago, a French study, and uh, they reckoned only one in 20,000 adverse reactions or side effects were ever being recorded by the doctor. Usually because he's too busy, it means more paperwork and who needs it, or it could be a side effect that hasn't been recorded before, and therefore they look down the list and say, well, it can't be the drug because it's not been recorded, so it's not the drug. And yet, of course, it was, and it never does get recorded. But, you know, so it's extraordinary, isn't it, Lynn? Well, these studies essentially are dirty. Mm. You know, the British Medical Association identified that three quarters of medical studies, as we've talked about before on this podcast, are massaged by PR firms. And that's the British Medical Association saying this. Same thing, New England Journal of Medicine, their editor said the same. So we know that these studies are being massaged, but now we're seeing that they're not even set up to ask the question. Mm. And what outrages me the most about this story is that the regulatory authorities are allowing these drugs through. Mm. When they're not even asking questions about side effects, that no drug regulator says, hey, what about Mm. the side effects? Um, And then finally, by the time it gets to the doctor, doctors aren't really taught that drugs have side effects. I mean, we had somebody in our office recently whose wife had just had a baby, um, got jaundice. Mm. And um, he and his wife had looked online and realized, looking at side effects <laughs> of the drug they had given her for high blood pressure post-birth mm. caused liver issues. And they kept bringing this up to the doctor in hospital and everybody said, no, 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 no. Um, because they don't, they aren't, aren't schooled to say that drugs could ever cause a problem. Mm. So we've got it right down the line, but it really is the regulatory agencies, Brian. They really mm. need a slap for this one. And, and the clinical trials, they're set up to first and foremost look at the safety of the drug even before its effectiveness. And if they're not even setting up the trial to capture that data, it's failing in its fundamental, um, fundamental purpose. Shame on you, Food and Drug Administration. Mm. Absolutely. Well, on which slightly unhappy note, we'll have to call it a day there. It's slightly gone over this one. It's a veritable smorgasbord of interesting health information this week. I'm sure you'll agree. So I hope you don't mind us running over a little bit. But I'll say adieu till next time. My name's Brian Hubbard. Thanks for watching or for listening. And Lynn McTaggart. And don't forget to check out our magazine in all good stores, supermarkets and newsagents. Thank you. Thank you.